0: All right, if you guys have your Bibles, why don't you guys meet me in Romans chapter 2. We are week 7 of our series, and we are just getting to Romans chapter 2. And if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand, and then one of the guys will be able to get you a copy of God's Word. Uh, If you don't own a Bible, please keep the one that we are handing out so that you can own God's Word, have it, study it, um, and learn and grow from it. Romans chapter 2, we are, uh, again... um, Seven weeks into a 70-week series looking at the book of Romans where we're going to look at section by section at what it is that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Rome. Um, We just concluded looking in chapter 1 primarily looking at sins of licentiousness, uh, worldliness-type sins, um, and, and we've been looking at the wrath of God that was to be revealed because of those things. If you can boil it all down, you have 18 through 32, the big word out of God's character was God's wrath. Um, if now in chapter 2, um, chapter 2 verses 1 through 16, so the next two or three weeks, it's going to be God's judgment, so wrath and then judgment. So last week, or last four weeks, Paul's been looking at people who lived as if there were no God and saying, it's not good for you. And then now he begins to look at people who have a moral standard, who have a moral compass, and people who are probably just into more moralism or religion apart from repentance. And he's equally saying, it's not going to be that good for you either, and so that's where we pick up this morning in and, and chapter 2. I'm going to read the first couple of verses. Paul says, therefore, and we've always said we have to pause it at therefore because if we're understanding how to study through God's word, therefore is a connecting word. Something that the author had previously said, he's about to connect. And um, what he's doing is saying wrath and judgment comes upon people who don't act as if there's no God because there's no repentance. And he's about to say, now also, judgment is going to come upon people who act as if they know God and do what God says to do and are very moral, but there's no repentance. And so, religion, in the very pejorative, negative sense, religion apart from repentance will always bring destruction. And so, Paul says, therefore, you have no excuse, oh man, every one of you who judges, For in passing judgment on one another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. You know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Paul's saying, you have no excuse. Now, now here's what's happening here. Paul is trying to address a people and try to get them to see themselves for what they really are and how God sees them. And most of us, we're not really self-aware to understand those, those things you've had this happen to you before or maybe you've done this to other people where someone has come up to you and says, hey, you look like someone I know or hey, you look like someone famous and you're excited, you're like, man, is it going to be Denzel this time? Who's it going to be, right? Right. And it's usually someone who you think is very unattractive, and it's like, oh, this person from this movie, he was like the zombie in the movie? That's when you look like him. And you're like, really? Well, um, 13 years ago, there was a a movie that came out called Save the Last Dance, very lame movie. And um, I was a freshman in college, and I would have people come to me and say I look like this guy from this movie. I remember being at an ASU baseball game, and these girls were in the seats below us. They kept turning around and looking, and they were pointing. And I'm thinking, you know, you know what I'm thinking, right? And I'm, and they're, I'm like, me? And they're like, yeah. And they're like, come here. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I see it. And like, hey, does anybody ever tell you you look like that guy from Save the Last Dance? I'm like, oh. So I finally went and looked up this guy, and I'm like, is that what people think I look like? Right? And that happens to us, whether it's people in movies or whether it's family members that we don't like. And they're like, you're going to be like your dad. You remind me of your dad. And, um, and every once in a while, when we walk away from those conversations, we go, is that what people think I look like? I believe what Paul is trying to do um, in these next few verses as well as the next few weeks is trying to get people who wouldn't otherwise see themselves for the way that God sees them to get us thinking, really, is that what I look like? Because what, what we have here is religion in a pejorative sense people who are moral, people who are doing the right things. And that type of religion, apart from repentance, we said will always lead an end to destruction. And not only when you pursue religion apart from repentance, will there be destruction at the end for you, but also what it produces, it makes you judgmental towards others and makes you oblivious towards yourself or your own sin and also unrepentant towards God. Judgmental towards others and oblivious towards yourself, you begin to minimize your own sin And then unrepentant towards others. So that first one, it says you're judgmental towards others. And that's what Paul is getting at here in verses 1 and 2 when he says, you have no excuse, oh man. When when Paul says, you have no excuse in in, in verse 1, he he takes the same language he used to talk about the irreligious in 18, 19, and 20. The picture here is if you're standing before the just judge who is God, you have no excuse um, that, that somehow you feel as if you can escape because of your morality. And the reason why he says you have no excuse, he says, oh, man, every one of you who judges for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Now, let me pause there for a second, because here's what we naturally think. We think that what Paul is saying is that the reason why judgment is going to come upon the religious is because they're judging people. That is our culture now. No one wants to be someone who judges. You don't want to be seen as someone who's judging you. If you've ever been with a friend of yours or a coworker, and you begin talking about even morality or the gospel in Christ, oh, I feel like you're judging me. And you're like, no, that's the last thing. I never want to judge you. Paul, Paul is not saying that judging is wrong. He's not even saying that judging is bad. He's not saying that they are getting, um, they're going to be condemned because they're judging. Like In the Bible, There is a godly way and an ungodly way to judge. Um, The the godly way to judge is called discipleship. The Bible lets us know that when we walk along in the gospel and out of the gospel with our brothers and sisters in Christ, that we are to understand our position, meaning we have a log. Our sin should seem like a log in our eye. And so when we come to our sister or our brother, it looks like a speck. But there's a calling out, there's a pointing out and pointing to Jesus, meaning I have your intended in, your best intended in, and what God has created you to be in Christ Jesus to live towards that way. And there's a way in which the church should hold each other accountable. That would be a godly way. And then there's an ungodly way, and Jesus talks about this in Matthew chapter 6. In fact, you used to have one of the most famous verses that Christians and non-Christians would know was do unto others as you would want them to do unto you. Now, it's judge not, lest you too be judged. And that's what Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 6, verse 37. And what Jesus is talking about that, he's talking about religious, moralistic people who did not care about the people who they were judging. He only, they only wanted to see their condemnation. And so when Paul talks about this, he's saying, here's what happens when you pursue religion and you pursue morality apart from repentance. You become judgmental in the ungodly way. Because what happens is you don't see the log in your eye, but you see the log in everybody else's eyes. And so if we peel back for a second, and if we can recall 18 through 32 in chapter 1, what's happening is Paul is saying, you're licentious, you, you covet, you steal, there's sexual morality. The whole while, the religious are going, yeah, I love it when my pastor talks about sin. I love it when he goes after this particular community. I love it that we could be a church that preaches truth. And then Paul turns around and goes, oh, you too. That's what he's doing. Oh, yeah, you too. And the reason why um, judgment is coming upon them, though they're judgmental, it's not because they're judging. It's because they don't realize they're doing the same things. Here's what what Paul says here as he continues in verse 1. It's because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Not those who judge, but those who practice the same things. Now, when Paul says same things there, if you've been tracking along and you've been here for the past three weeks, past four or five weeks you go, how are religious people who are morally upright people doing the same things as Paul has been talking about? Well, I believe what Paul is saying is, he, first, he's not saying that they've done everything that he lists in 18 to 32, but primarily, I think, verses 28 to 31, which was, you're to think that people who go to church— Good Bible-toting people. Like we said, hey, if you have a Bible, if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. You know, people were like, no, I have my Bible, and it's not on the phone. Got my name etched in my Bible, right? The, those, the, the, it, not just you, but people like that, religious people, good people, moral people. You don't think they gossip? You don't think they slander? You don't think there's deceit? You don't think there's maliciousness? You don't think they disobey their parents? Yeah. And Paul's saying, here's what you're, you're, you're failing to realize, as you're, you're judging people, you do the same things. It may look different, but you're doing the same things as people, and you don't even notice it. When when I was um. Working as an admissions counselor, and some of you guys have had this experience, too, uh, in, your, in your organizations and wherever you work, is that sometimes the environment that you work in can become very toxic, uh, depending on the demands. And so, as an admissions counselor, one of the things I had to do was based, it was broken up into two seasons. First semester, you had to get people to apply for school, and you want to get as many people as you can to apply, you were graded off that. Second semester, how many people get enroll in school? So I was working at ASU, doing my job, and I, the areas of recruitment that I had was, was uh, the two most um, God-given beautiful cities in Arizona, Yuma and Tucson. Um, those, those are the areas that I had to go to, and it was already bad enough that I hated being in those areas a week out of the year. When I'd come back to the office, everyone would just be arguing and bickering because our boss would change things all the time because his boss would change things all the time, and his boss ultimately goes up to Michael Crow, not saying it's his fault, but he's trying to build a new American university, so they want more and more kids to come to ASU. ASU, and it was just kind of chaos, and everybody in the environment was just complaining, 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 so I found myself saying, I don't want to be a complainer, I don't, I, Lord, I know this is not what you have for me, so I try to remove myself by yet being in that cubicle space, and not let it kind of, quote, unquote, get on me, well, here's what would happen, after work was over, um, Holly and I, uh, Holly was working in Avondale, and she, she'd come down, pick me up at ASU, and then we'd drive home together, and every day I'd get in the car and I'd say, how's your day? And I'd tell her, oh, my gosh, you won't believe what this person said. You won't believe what this person said. I, I wish they would just get their act together and stop complaining. Well, one day she says, um, do you even notice that you, you hate their complaining and then you get in the car and then you complain about them complaining? Like, you come in the car and complain about them complaining, right? And I thought, oh, my gosh, I can't believe you would turn on me like that. <laughs> <laughs> Like, she pointed out the, the obvious reality that I couldn't see. I did the same thing, but in a different way. It was minimized. It was just me and my wife. It was like, I'm just telling you about what happened. That's what Paul was getting at. Um, this, this, to me, is, is what gets in the way of most church people. We can look, look at obvious lists of sin, and if we can just kind of stay away from those particular sins, we think we're okay. I mean, nobody in here would say, I'm perfect, I'm close to Jesus. I hope nobody in here would say that. But what we do is we minimize our sin. And and Paul is saying, don't you realize that judgment is coming upon you because you do the same things. And the reason why we minimize it is because we, in doing good, we and doing good things and doing the right things, taking the imperatives of scriptures and, and living out those things, the principles of scriptures, and doing those things really well. What happens is we build up, so to say, moral capital. And we have moral capital, we have a little leeway. And so, what moral capital does for us is it, it distances us from, um, away, away from the reality of our own sin. And, and we know this just from experience that objects always seem seems smaller when you're further away. Like when you're driving up to something and you're far away, it looks really small, even though you know it's bigger than what it really is. And the the picture that comes to my mind is when we were kids, we would drive, we wouldn't drive, my mother would drive us and my dad would drive us to Las Vegas from California, which that's where you're supposed to take kids. And so we would go to Vegas and and, and primarily because Circus Circus, this is like mid 90s, early 90s. So Circus Circus was like, you can get as many teddy bears as you can. Your parents can gamble their whole like riches away and then you can just get there, right? And we would be so excited because it would be dark, and you get closer and closer, and it'd just be a little speck of light, and then more light, and then more light. And the closer we got to it, the bigger it was. Well, here's what happens with with religious people apart from repentance. Your good outweighs your bad. Let me just tell you this. Because you're here, chances are, by being here at some sort of consistent basis— your good and the standards horizontally of this world probably outweigh your bad. In comparison to the people who you're around normally, you are probably better, so to say, in doing moral things than they are. Maybe. And that's a dangerous place to be because you will begin to uh, be, you minimize your sin. You will begin, begin to be in denial about your sin. It's not as bad. You see it in other people and go, I can't believe they would do that. And like my wife pointed out to me, it's like, you're doing the same things and so not only does religion apart from repentance um, cause you to be judgmental towards others it makes you oblivious toward your own sin and the result of your own sin look, look at verse three with me do you suppose O oh man you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself that you will escape the judgment of god paul's asking this question like are, 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 do you not get this yeah, yeah, maybe you're not in this particular sin. Like, let's just say this is licentious, irreligious sin, but you're in a self-righteous sin. Like, I don't think you're seeing this because both is sin in God's eyes. And, and it's always going to be sin. What we naturally do is, um, as believers even, not even some of those in this, in this room that are not Christian, even as those who believe in Jesus would say, yeah, we know that, that sin is, you know, it's, it, it's equal, but there are some sins that are worse, let me, let me tell you this. There are certain sins that have worse consequences. 18 through 32, chapter 1, those particular sins, the, the, the socially and physically, the results of that, the consequence of that, oftentimes are worse than your self-righteous sin, which leads me to believe that if you're in this category and you're just making a wreck out of your life and you have the, the consequences, it may be easier for you to believe in the gospel when you hear it because you can look at it and go, that's inconsistent. The scary part over here for self-righteous, church-going type religious people is that you are actually doing things that seem very consistent um, with with Christianity and biblical practices and good Christian living. And yet your heart could be rotten. That your heart could be rotten. That you won't even see it. Like that's, that's the dangerous part of this. And that's what Paul is trying to say. Look at you. You think somehow they have it worse than you and they're going to get it worse than you. How do you get that? And Paul is trying to be clear with that. He's trying to make, make, make this a statement for us to see we become oblivious to our own sin. We, we become blinded to our own sin. Uh, um, Paul says there's judgment that's coming for those types of people. And when we hear those types of people, naturally, we, we start thinking of other people, like not us, right? Like we, we, we don't think that's us. Because the reason why people and many of us will struggle with um, licentious sins and the reason why that blinds you from God is because it gives you an ex- a good experience. Anybody in this room who's struggled with those sins, you go, man, yeah, it was, a ba- it was bad. I shouldn't have done it. But like if I'm being honest with you, it was a lot of fun at the time. It was a lot of fun. Um, The reason why self-righteous sin blinds you is because it gives you a sense of entitlement. It gives you a sense that God owes you, that your your good does outweigh your bad. And so he can't allow bad things to happen to you. He can't allow you to be fired from your job. I mean, he can't just, you know, judge you. I mean, he kind of owes you. You're doing everything that he said that he wanted you to do. Like, I mean, how could these things happen to you? And there's an entitlement there. And the crazy thing about entitlement is you're blinded to that. Have you ever met the person who says, yeah, I kind of got a sense of entitlement, like I'm kind of an entitled person, I know it. And me and my friends, we are, we always talk, in fact, we've, we've created a group for it. We get together on every Tuesday and we talk about how entitled we are, right? Like that that doesn't happen. It's like, it's the same thing to me living in Tim is that I have an idea of what a hipster is and yet I've never met the person who says, I'm a hipster, right? If I say, hey, you're a hipster, oh, no, 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 and they'll explain to you, here's what a hipster is like and here's these people and they'll just give you a listen you're going, that's you, like, it's like, no, 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 that's somebody else. Um, the tendency for us in this room is to go, when Paul's saying this, and he's saying you're oblivious to sin, it's like, oh, I know people like that. I, no, he's trying to say me, and he's trying to say you. You're oblivious to it. And if you've ever been in an environment where you finally get caught on that and it, and it exposes you, or you've been around people, you go, oh, my gosh, how did they not see that? Like, it's like, it should be so obvious when, in, in college, one of the best things that you could have or your roommate could have it was was it like a Sam's Club or a Costco card, right? If they had one of those you knew, yes, pizza, soda, hot dogs for like 15 cents is going to be great. Um, my roommate says to, to us, hey, I don't know if I told you guys this, but I have a Sam's Club card. And we're like, are you kidding me? that is amazing. That's like the best thing I've ever heard. And so we're like, let's go now. We go to Sam's Club. Um, It's me, this guy who has a Sam's Club card, and then my other roommate, and we all have three carts. We're like, this is going to be great. We're going to get a lot of food, right? We get up to the door, and you know, they check your card there, and the lady goes, sir, this is a Costco card. And he goes, yeah, I know. And he tries to go, and she stops him. She goes, sir, this is a Costco card. This is Sam's Club. And he goes, it's the same thing, right? (laughs) He goes, it's the same thing. And she's like, no, it's not. This says Sam's Club. That says Costco. And like, and he's still arguing with her. Well, me and my other roommate are like, this idiot, man. He got us all. We had to go park our carts. And like, we all got excited for all the Otter Pops we were going to be able to get. And like, It's not the same thing. So we were denied. He was just so oblivious. He thought, man, I thought this is like the same thing. Here's the danger of religion apart from repentance. Is that many people who would show up to a church service, who would take their time to give their money, to tithe, to raise their kids, to look at the imperatives of scriptures and do them Um, many people who look like God-fearing, following people, like the people of which Paul was talking to here, Um, people who were very religious, but apart from a heart reality of the goodness of God that leads to repentance, um, we think it's the same thing. And there will come a day, as Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, and this is like one of the scariest verses in Scripture. Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23, just to paraphrase it, it says that in that day, Jesus said that there will be those who come up to him, and, then, and they will expect to receive and to enter into the kingdom of God. And Jesus is going to look at them. He's going to look at a list and go, listen, um, you're not on the list. And they're going to say to him, hey, didn't I do like religious things? Like, didn't I cast out demons? Didn't I go to church? Didn't I give? Didn't I raise my kids? You know what? I took an application and I signed up to serve those stinking kids, right? You know, like, didn't I do those things? And Jesus is going to say, um, yeah, um, depart from me. I never knew you. And they're, 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 they're there thinking, it's the same thing. I played church. Like, I did the deal. And Jesus is saying, it's not the same thing. Again, the scariest part about being over here with self-righteous sin is it looks the same. And yet the motivation is completely different. And when you you start, one, having a judgmental heart towards others and you have an oblivious awareness of yourself, you don't know yourself, you minimize your sin. The only place that that can lead to is the most dangerous place that humanity could ever be in. And that is the last point of you begin to have an unrepentant heart, an unrepentant heart, because sin begins to blind you. In fact, here's what one guy talks about, um, John Henry Jowett, when he talks about sin. He says, Sin blocks and chokes the fine senses of the spirit. By sin, we are desensitized, rendered imperceptive, and the range of our correspondence is dis- diminished. Sin creates callosity, it hoofs the spirit, and so reduces the area of our exposure to pain. You see, we don't like pain. We don't like confrontation. We don't like when someone tells us the honest truth about ourselves and, and, and it hurts us. We don't like that. And yet that's an evidence of God's grace in our life for change. There, there is a disease. It's a rare disease that people have where they don't feel pain. And I was reading stories on these twin boys from Washington that that grew up with this disease. They're they're 35, that one's 35, the other one took his life. and, And he talked about how when he was young, he bit through his tongue and he didn't even know it. And he knocked out his teeth. And it's just a terrible disease where they can't feel pain. And most of us, we overly medicate ourselves so we can't feel things. And this kid is just saying, this adult is saying, I wish I can feel pain. If I could, maybe my brother would still be here because I believe that's one of the reasons why he took his life. Pain, even in a broken world, it lets us know when we hurt, we need help. We need help. And if we, don't, if we don't feel anything, if we minimize our sin, if we're not nearly as wicked and flawed as we thought we were, we will never reach out to God. But if it's just a little maintenance check, we will, tr- we will trust our body to heal itself And when that becomes into spirituality, we will see things that are deficient in us and we'll fix them. We become spiritual fixers. I know I have these issues, but I'm going to read this book. I'll do this. I'll pray a little bit more and then I'll fix it myself or I'll fix it with somebody else. But we don't naturally run to God and we become very unrepentant. Even though our behavior changes. We become good at behavior modification. We become good-looking Christians doing good things. Look at us. It's amazing. It looks exactly the way that God describes in the Scripture, and yet it could still be unrepentant. And there are plenty of people like that. In fact, there are plenty of people not in this room who don't believe in Jesus who live better lives than us, better lives than us. Um, here's what Paul says the end is for those who never repent. The end is primarily speaking here for the religious who've been playing God and playing church and playing Christianity. Here's what he says in verse five. "But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So he took wrath again, even though talking about licentious people for the past four weeks, he's saying we have a God who's impartial, and he looks at sin as sin, and he judges both licentious sin sin, as well as self-righteous sin, and we all need Jesus. We all need Jesus. I don't don't know if you've ever met that person, that person whose life is just good. And, and, And some of you, it's you. Like, some of you are just good people. Apart from the spirit of Christ in your life, you would normally be good people. I'm convinced that, that my wife, if you took me and my wife and we were not Christians, my wife would naturally be a good person. She just naturally does good. When I talk to her mom, like, tell me, give me the bad stories about when Holly was a kid. What did she do that was really bad? And she goes, oh, there's one time when she was five, um, she got in trouble. I wouldn't even know him, but she told on herself. So, That's stupid. <laughs> Why would you do that? The, the sign said no touching the bees at the zoo and so she came home that night and her mom was praying with her Mommy. she's like sad she goes I think I killed the bees the sign said don't touch it oh man I, I touched it oh you know do to me what I deserve you know whatever whatever the language may be and that's like wow and like if you went to my mom and said hey tell me the worst story she like pulls out the notepad and like like you know what I mean it's like different people, like apart from the spirit, I think I would, I would be nice maybe, but I would be very deceiving. And some of you guys are just more like my wife. You're just more like, you're just, some kids are just, just they're just good kids and they grow up to be just good adults. And I, and I say that because when I first became a Christian, I had a very limited understanding of the gospel because I came out of that licentious life. Like it was like the gospel came to bear on me and it was like, yes, I'm not doing any of these things anymore. And so there was a friend of mine who I've shared this story before because it was just life changing for me. After the fact, um, she's. I kept inviting her into this Bible study, and she goes, "Why do you invite me to this Bible study?" I'm like, "Because now that I'm a Christian and you're a Christian, like are, this is great." She goes, "What makes you think I'm a Christian?" I was like, "Well, you're <laughs> you're good, right? When I wasn't a Christian, you were being good. Now I'm good, so you should be good too, right?" And and she goes, "No." She goes, "Listen, you're right. I I I'm saving myself from marriage, so I have my purity there." Um, I give my money away, and I serve. I mean, she was just so just gracious. And she goes, so I live lives better than what Christians live, better than what the Bible says that what they should live. I live better than them. So tell me, why do I need Jesus? And because my limited understanding of the gospel was that the good news of Jesus is, I don't smoke anymore. I don't do these things anymore. I don't steal anymore. I don't lie as much anymore. And, and that was good news to me. And so when she said the I remember walking away out of Office Max over there on uh, Broadway and Rural thinking, dang it, what? I knew she does, right? But why? She is really good. And the position that she's in is the same position that many people are in. Is that somehow we just think that being good is it. And hear me, morality is not bad. Morality is really good. Moralism is bad. Moralism is when you begin to base your identity and your standing before God, if there is a God in your worldview, or other people, by what you do. And because of that, you become unrepentant. The, 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 the language here that it says here in verse 5, it says, your hard and impenitent heart. A hard heart, it doesn't mean that you're, you're a murderer. It's not synonymous with that. It doesn't mean that no one will like you. It just means that you're, you're unrepentant. Even the Pharisees. The Pharisees had friends. People liked the Pharisees. People people liked them. They weren't just the, 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 the jerks of the day, right? Jesus didn't like them that much, but people did. And, 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 and many of us find our place here. We would never consider morality, good people, judgment, and wrath. And yet, that's exactly what Paul begins to bring there. He begins to speak of that now. You see, when we don't need Jesus or we're in a position where we don't feel pain like the story of those boys I told you. You can hear Jesus' words in our, in our in our ear that a person who's not sick doesn't need a physician. And, and Jesus was, when he said this, he was talking to the Pharisees, and I think he was saying that tongue-in-cheek, meaning if you don't have a problem, then you don't need a physician. Jesus wasn't saying, oh, you guys are perfect. You don't need anything. He was just saying, you can't even see your need. If you don't see your need, then you won't, you won't look for a solution. If you don't think you're lost, then then you won't want to be found. And if you don't think you're broken, you won't need a savior. You won't need to be redeemed. And and, and so what we have at the very end of this is that both irreligious, that we talked about for the past four weeks, and religious, self-righteous people, that they both enter into the same funnel and they end up in the same place, and that is destruction. That is judgment, and that is wrath. And so the only hope for both, the believer and the unbeliever, the righteous and the unrighteous, For the Christian and the person who does not know God, for the mature Christian and for the young Christian, it's all the same. And it's repentance. It's repentance. It's the very core and crux of what it means to enter into the kingdom of God and what it means to grow as a person in the kingdom of God. So whether you've been a Christian for 30 seconds or whether you've been a Christian for 30 years, that we realize that our issues are bigger than what they seem to appear And the closer we get to him, we realize, man, this is really big. And my issue, though it looks different than this person, man, we are both in the same boat and we both need Jesus. And Jesus is the only way that we can actually have true repentance. And so Paul, as he so often does, does not leave us, irreligious or religious, licentiousness nor self-righteousness without hope. And here's what he he gives us in verse 4. Verse 4 will be the key verse of hope for the next three weeks. And here's what he says. Or do you presume on the riches and kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? He's talking primarily to his original audience are these Jewish moralist people who thought that because they were Jewish, because they had a covenantal relationship, because they were circumcised, that somehow that God was going to overlook their issues, meaning because lightning bolts wasn't coming down on them right now, that somehow they were okay. And what Paul is saying, I don't think you get it. Do you presume on the riches of God, not realizing that his kindness, his love, his mercy, his patience... The reason why God is being patient with you in this room with me, some of you, because you've never believed and God has a special, special love for you. And it's called salvation. And the reason why the lightning bolts haven't come down is because you are one of his kids and he is waiting and waiting. It says that he's for this forbearance, meaning long suffering in order that you would believe and trust and follow him. And then those of us in this room that believe in Jesus, he's saying that he's also patient, that we would constantly, um, continually turn back to his character and his love and his grace and his goodness. He said, you can't presume upon this. I mean, this is like the age-old junior high, high school thing. What happens is you go to a young life camp or you go to a student ministry deal and you bring a guy on stage or a girl and she tells you how she's made a, just a, a mess of her life and then God saved her at 35 and most of us like youth leaders are like, yeah, didn't you guys like that? You break off in the small group and the kid goes, here's what I got. I can live like an idiot for a long time. And then I'll wait till I'm 35 and then God has saved me. That would be perfect. We look at that and go, no, you idiots, 12th grader. You know, think about this. But then we realize that's us. We, we tarry, we wait, we wait, and we wait thinking, oh, everything's okay. And then maybe later in my life, that's when I'll really kick in my spiritual love for God. And, and Paul is saying, no, it's his kindness that is meant to lead you to repentance. And what we need to do for religious as well as irreligious, as a body of believers, we have to redeem the word repentance. Here's why. You and I both know that repentance has always been seen as a negative thing. That's what bad people need to do. They need to repent. What the Bible clearly presents to us in the gospel is that people who understand their issues, they need to repent because that's where they find their solution. That's where they find their Savior. That's where they find their love. That's where they find their identity. That's where they find beauty and joy and justice and delight and flourishing is by repenting to the one who has called them, and that is in God. Repentance is not a negative thing. It's a way of life. It's always joy. Because you're turning from something that was a lie into the truth. You're turning this from something that was going to end in destruction to something that's going to continue in, in beauty and in joy. And so it's a beautiful word. And so when we're thinking about repentance, we've got to understand the two whys of repentance and even a how. The first, why is under, or the first what about repent, repentance is what it is. Usually you hear it saying it's a 180 degree. Now, it is a 180 degree change, but first it's primarily belief over behavior. And here's what I mean by that. Many of us do behavior modification. You know what that means? That means I'm, I have a behavior that needs to be corrected for whatever reason. People don't like it when I lie, so I stop lying. Okay, did my heart change? No. No, I just changed it because I don't, you know, I don't want people not to like me. Um, and so I can change my behavior. There are plenty really good uh, organizations that help alcoholics stop being alcoholics with apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I'm not knocking those things. Those things are good. That's not repentance. So you can have a 180 and be behavior modification. But belief, belief is trusting. That word repentance, it means metanoia. At first, it means a change. Before you change your behavior, it's a change in mind. It's a change in worldview. It's, it's a change in what is true and what is beautiful. It is seeing the character of God as Paul displays here in verse 4. It is saying no longer being judgmental, no longer being oblivious to your own sin or unrepentant, but seeing the beauty of God and the fact that he has been holding back his wrath and is is patient in order that we may know him and find our lives in him. And so first, it's a 180 of belief and of change. And the second one is, is that repentance is not centered off what you need to do and what needs to happen. It's centered around God. When it's about what you need to do, Um, You find yourself in the position that I was with my friend, uh, Katie, that that said, do I need Jesus? I don't need to change. And the truth of the matter is, her heart needed to change. Her behavior was already in line. Some of you, when you become a Christian, um, your attitudes and your behavior may not change because it's already pretty consistent. The whys change. Like, what makes you change? Not so that you could be seen as a good person. Not so that you could be seen as a good mom or a good guy or a manly guy or a strong guy or a guy who's a stand-up guy. Not, not because of what you could be seen as. But you realize that a Christian repents not only because of things that they've done wrong, but even the reasons of why she does right. And I remember the first time I heard that, like, why the heck would a Christian repent of doing right things? Isn't that what a Christian's supposed to do? The more I begin to understand the gospel, I realize the majority of my life as a Christian has only been behavior modification. It's been fear because I don't want my accountability buddies to have to know that I'm doing these stupid things again, and so I will stop these things, and then therefore I will be seen as a good Christian. And one day I can grow up and be a mature Christian, and then I can be a pastor, and I can tell people how to be good people. But I'm so thankful from the Spirit of God and from the Word of Scripture to say, that's not biblical repentance. That's just religion. You repent of the reasons of why you've done right and why you're doing right, and you turn and trust the reason that, mo- that the only motivation the right motivation, the healthy, is God's character, his love for us, and what he's done supremely in the work of Christ Jesus. The best way to picture this repentance that leads to change and growth over a lifestyle is if you've read the book, you've seen the play, or you've seen the movie of, of Le Mis, and you see that Jean Valjean, when he gets caught by the cop, and he's got all the all the cups and stuff with him, and then the bishop there could just condemn him, but he doesn't condemn him. The bishop could say, yeah, 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 he's okay. Let him, let him go, cop. And he could have him work his way um, back to uh, being in the relationship with him. Or he can just flat out lavish his goodness and grace on him. And that's exactly what happens. He goes, no, he's okay. It's fine. He takes the pain. He takes it in himself in order that John Valjean can go on and live a life. And what happens with his life? It's the kindness of the bishop that leads him to repentance. It's the goodness of the bishop that leads him to repentance. And the rest of his life is no longer seeking things for himself. It's no longer living for himself, but it's using everything of which he has, every good gift, to bless the people around him. That is a picture of what God's grace and what God's goodness and his character begins to do for us. That when we see what God has done for us in Christ Jesus, how he is willing to take on the pain, literally, on the cross, That the wrath that was stored up for us, that he opened up the gates and lavished him on his son in order that we may have his love lavished upon us. When we see that, we we repent to that, to believe in Jesus. And and those of us who are Christians, we do that again and again with every sin in our life to say, God, you are good and you are best. Jesus is the good life and that's how we grow. And the last thing about repentance is, it's not a one-time act, It's daily that you are constantly turning to the goodness of God. If Christians are marked by anything, it should be marked by their love and understanding of God's grace in which they rest their entire life on, not by what we do. So our morality, always, and obedience, always flows from our love of God. Amen? So in conclusion, religion. When you pursue religion apart from repentance, it will always end in destruction. You're storing up wrath for yourself. But when you understand the goodness of God and you believe and rest in the goodness of God, trust in the goodness of God, it will always lead to repentance and true life and life abundantly. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the great grace which has been extended to us, your son Jesus. As we prepare our hearts and we prepare our minds to come to the table, Lord, I just pray for a true sense of repentance. Not a repentance out of fear and the fear of damnation, Lord, because of our sin, but a repentance out of delight and joy because of what you've done on our behalf. God, help us to be aware of our own sin that we would not be oblivious. And Lord, help us not to be judgmental people towards people who would do things that we would never do. Realizing, Lord, we do them. We do them either in heart or in action. We are really good at hiding, God. We're really good at hiding from people and and, and even ourselves. And so, God, would you just give us a glimpse of who we are apart from you that we may hide ourselves in you. God, we thank you that your blood truly has covered us. We thank you that you have given us your son. We thank you that you do give us your word to be honest. And Lord, for the past several weeks, your scripture has just been reading us and convicting us as a body. And we ask that you continue to do such, Lord, that would move us to joy in you. And we would celebrate this good news collectively, that the world around us would see the goodness of God in and through the community of his people. And so, Father, we ask that you would guide us, you would fill us with your spirit, um, that you would rain down and your kingdom would come in this city, in our workplaces, in our families, in our marriages, in our singles, that we may rejoice in you. In Jesus' name, amen.